Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Jan Orman. This podcast is part of a series developed for Black Dog Institute and the E-Mental Health in Practice Project. The podcasts are distillations of webinars that we've conducted in recent times and are designed for those who simply haven't got time to sit down and watch a webinar. In this episode, we look at what makes a mentally healthy workplace. It fits nicely with an earlier webinar on burnout that you can also access on demand or as a podcast from the Black Dog Institute website. We hoped in this webinar to introduce you to some of what the science says about mental health in the workplace, as well as some of the online tools that might help you or someone you know transform their workplace into a mentally healthier one. With me in the webinar were Professor Sam Harvey, a psychiatrist and epidemiologist whose area of academic interest is mental health in the workplace, and Peter Ferreira, a psychologist by training who works as a counsellor and executive coach and also as an educator in the Black Dog Institute's workplace education program, teaching all kinds of workers about mental health and its impact on our working lives. Before we begin... I want to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which I live and work and pay my respects to the elders past, present and future, especially any who happen to be listening to this podcast. We started the conversation in the webinar by talking about the prevalence of mental health issues in the workplace. What we know about psychological injury is that since 2011, mental health conditions have been amongst the leading cause of long-term sickness absence amongst Australian workers. Is there any way, Sam, that we can talk about what the actual prevalence of work-related psychological injury is, or is that yet unclear? I think we can talk about it in a couple of different ways. We know that if you look at the working age population, you're going to have about one in five, one in six people with a mental health problem, particularly mainly depression or anxiety. If you look at long-term sickness absence or disability benefits, around about 35% of those cases are considered to be due to a mental health problem. There's pretty good evidence that that's probably an underestimate. It probably should be a bit higher than that, above 40%. So, you know, any any situation where you are seeing a lot of long-term sickness absence or disability benefit claim notices passing across your desk, then mental health is going to be the most common in most countries now. Sam reckoned that workplace-related mental health problems are currently costing Australia $12 billion a year. There's a Beyond Blue report called Heads Up from 2014 that shows that when people consider their workplaces to be mentally healthy, the rate of absenteeism is halved. But absenteeism is not the only problem. In terms of the cost, and if you look at the overall cost, presenteeism probably costs at least as much as absenteeism, maybe more. Um, and, And I think that's not surprising. You know, we know... Lots of people still go to work when they're suffering from depression or anxiety and they are probably not concentrating as well as they, they normally do, probably don't have the level of energy they normally have. It's not surprising that their performance is down. So presenteeism refers to those people who are unwell but still going to work and whose illness is making them perform suboptimally. If you look across the spectrum of mental of medical conditions, depression, 
is right at the top in terms of causes of presenteeism. And I just want to also make the point about the presenteeism, where some people like turn up and um, they just go through emotions, um, not really aligned with you know any of the corporate sort of you know mantras or what the business wanting to focus on. So um, which is a, it's, it's um, you know huge economic sort of cost for a lot of businesses. So for business, there's a definite benefit in improving the health of the workplace. The way the workplace can impact on personal well-being is best illustrated by thinking about a situation you might find yourself in. Imagine you're a contractor in a multidisciplinary primary care practice. Just recently, about 12 months ago, the practice changed hands. The new management has made some changes in that 12 months, insisting that practitioners keep to time and minimise bulk billing, which is not something you feel particularly comfortable with. Some alternative medicine practitioners, non-evidence-based practitioners have been introduced to the practice. And again, you're not very comfortable with that. Sessions have been made longer so that, that there is no break between sessions. There's no, no writing up time at the end of the session. People have been in, invited to arrive on time with no late arrivals or early departures. And leave in the practice is restricted to one practitioner at a time of any given type. So if you're a psychologist, you can't go on leave when the other psychologist is on leave. And if you're a GP, the same thing applies. And They've even taken away the tea room and converted it into a consulting room. Final straw was when the staff were asked to pay for their own Christmas party last Christmas. Consequences have been high staff turnover, unhappy staff and increased absenteeism with a lot of people considering their options as far as um, working in this practice is concerned. The big question is, what are you likely to do about this situation? Will you take some sort of action or will you just grin and bear it? Are you likely to think the new management is being unreasonable or that you are just being inflexible? Let's look at the literature and see what it says about mentally healthy workplaces. It may help you decide what to do. The Mentally Healthy Workplace Framework comes from a meta-review undertaken by the researchers in SAM's team and published in 2017 in the Australian and New Zealand Journal of Psychiatry. The first author was Catherine Petrie, if you're interested in finding the paper. The framework describes five areas of concern that must be attended to in order to create mentally healthy workplaces. The first one is the job itself. Talk us through what you mean by job design, Sam. We've known for a while that if you look at some at particular work situations, there are certain workplace risk factors that are there for mental health. Um, and there's a variety of different aspects to job design that you can choose to measure and look at whether it's a risk factor. One of the best described ones is this idea of the balance between job demand and job control. So if, if you, on any job, you can consider it on a spectrum of how demanding it is and, and then also how much control the worker has in terms of deciding what they do and how they're going to do it. And, and, and the model goes that if you have a high demand job but you have high control, then that mitigates against some of the effects of, of the demand where you have problems is where you have high demand and low control, a situation that's called job strain. 
and and we've got pretty good evidence from a range of different situations that that's a, a problematic combination. And and where that's useful then is you can say, well, okay, how do we, you know we can't reduce the demand, but how can we increase people's disease control? It's interesting, isn't it, that when you think about that situation, that hypothetical situation with the practice under new management, that what's happened is that a group of people with high job demands, and that's a primary care practice, have just been put into a situation where their control over the work environment is diminishing and the flexibility has been lost. So that's not going to be a good thing overall. Mm. What about the workplace culture issues, injustice and unfairness and bullying and harassment. How much, Peter, of what you see is related to these issues? Mm -hmm. Yeah, workplace culture obviously plays a huge factor in um, all these um, issues we're discussing here. And um, even even today, I just had a meeting with a client that's moving. They're shifting offices here in, in Sydney. And they're moving to a, another open floor plan um, structure, which which my research is pointing out that that's, that system hasn't worked. But despite knowing that, they still um, are persisting with that. So, so it's interesting. We talk about job design and and so forth. But then I think part of the the challenge here is the is understanding and education of of people in managerial roles to um, to embrace these concepts and fully understand the implication on on the, the work environments. Mm-hmm. So culture, yeah, definitely huge issue. Let's take, talk about workplace bullying for a moment because that's something that you can't open your email or, or open a, a newspaper if you're into old-fashioned media without hearing something about. Safe Work Australia in 2017 uh, issued something called an Australian Workplace Barometer that showed that we've got the sixth highest incidence of workplace bullying compared with 34 European countries. That's pretty remarkable, really. Um, but when you think about Australian culture and um, the nature of our sense of humour, just as one example, it's not surprising really that some of that tra- translates into, into something that can be interpreted as bullying within the workplace. However, it goes way beyond that. Beyond Blue reports that nearly 50% of Australians will experience some bullying at some time in their working lives. Why do you think workplace bullying is flourishing, Peter? Well, I think it's once again, it's, a, it's a complex question, but it's vexed. Um, certainly there's economic drivers uh, for businesses to um, not just survive, but to prosper in, in this modern um, environment we're in. But also, I think um, sometimes it comes down to education of, of people, once again, in managerial roles um, to understand, once again, their behavior and the impact that's got on people. And a lot of people are fearful at the moment to challenge um, decisions or, or, or their managers because of no job availability. So I think that's one, it's sort of a two-way street, if it makes sense. I think people need help in understanding what constitutes bullying, really, mm-hmm. um, and maybe that's a place for us as health professionals to help people understand that. This is an interesting point made by um, a, a report called "Bullying in Australia: Workplace Bullying in Australia" that was released in 2014. Currently, workplace bullying tends to be framed as an individual and interpersonal psychological issue, whereas the research suggests that it needs to be conceptualised as 
as an organizational and structural issue as well as a cultural issue. So I, I think that's an important thing that we need to remember because we're generally speaking busy looking after individuals and those individuals work in a culture where that workplace bullying is not going to get better unless the culture's changed. So something needs to be done on both sides of the equation, mm-hmm. which takes me to managers and how, and this is part two of the recommendations for mentally healthy workplaces. How do we go about helping managers be better managers? What makes managers good managers? Uh, This is what the report says. It it seems to imply that some managers need to do leadership training, and that's something that we've already mentioned. Um, They need to provide support, communicate well, and respect that they're in the the team that they're in. I suppose the one thing that I would say is that I I think for a number of years we had this idea that that you were either born a good leader or not. Um, we've done a number of trials now where we've shown that you can teach managers some simple skills around mental health and how to have discussions around mental health and you get a lasting change in their behaviour and you see better uh, results for the people that they're managing. So I think there's been a real shift towards being able to train people to do some of these things better. My experience is that that when people are behaving unreasonably, um, yes, sometimes it's just because they're unreasonable people, but I think very often we see managers totally panic when they're asked to deal with a mental health problem and often they end up doing things that, that look just totally foolish and it's just through anxiety and panic. Mm-hmm. And um, I, 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 when we were developing some of these new manager training things, we were doing some stuff with senior firefighters and. Um, I remember one of the firefighters saying, who was a manager, that if I gave him an option of running into a burning building or speaking to one of his staff members about mental health, he'd take the building every time. Mm -hmm. Mm. I think that's not limited to firefighters. The third part of the Mentally Healthy Workplace Framework focuses on employee resilience. One of the, the big controversies is around resilience training for employees and whether or not resilience training of employees is the answer to all the questions. Now, my question is, how do we as health professionals encourage people, ourselves, our colleagues, our patients and clients to undertake resilience training and yet still support them in the workplace? How do we frame it in order for them not to think what we're doing is criticising them for not being resilient? What do you think, Sam? Well, I think um, the way in which you worded the question is interesting. I, I think where, where it goes wrong is where the, the narrative is that the answer is resilience training. And, of, of course, that implies that the problem is with the individuals and not with the, the, the system. Where resilience training is seen as just one piece of the puzzle, then it tends to be at, at its most use. And look, we know that you can teach people skills and techniques that allow them to hope to, to deal with conflicting demands or with stress or, or those types of things. And there's um, there's a review that was published in the, the BMJ Open about training and the types that work. So we know it has a role, but I think what we have to be careful about is communicating what its role is. Also, like with sometimes terminology becomes buzzwords in industry, like resilience training, everybody's talking about it, but it's a psycho 
um, psychological terminology for the average person, you know, what does it mean? And so, so things like mental toughness or, or grit. But, but it's also helping people understand um, most of us are actually quite resilient, um, but it's hard to access that. So, um, but I do agree it's one piece of a bigger mm-hmm. picture as well. It seems that encouraging resilience building is something we need to do as practitioners. And I probably don't need to remind you that there are a number of very good online tools to help you with that, from Smiling Mind to support regular mindfulness practice to the Mental Fitness Challenge on the Bite Back website and things like stress and worry management and problem-solving training in the various online treatment courses. The fourth arm of the framework is well-being screening. But Sam has some reservations. If you think of the most high-risk workforce you can imagine, which many people would say the military is right up there, if you look at uh, there was a massive study published in The Lancet um, 18 months ago where they randomised them to either get mental health screening or not when they got back and it appeared to make absolutely no difference. Um, similar workplace-based counselling, you know, there's never really been a, a well-done trial showing that that works or or mental health education. So I think these things have a role, but I think we need to be careful in not just making assumptions that it will definitely work. Once a problem has been identified, the issue is often whether someone should be at work or not. As practitioners, we're often asked to make that call. I I sort of have three, three rules. I mean, the first one is I think where possible, keeping people engage with their workplace is a good thing. The the two exceptions to that, and they're the other two guiding principles, are where somebody being at work is creating a dangerous situation for them or others. So if you uh, you know, if you've got a um, an ambulance officer that's depressed and drinking too much, then then you may not want them on the road or probably won't want them on the road. I guess the other thing is where their being at the workplace is going to make their mental health condition worse. And, and that's a really tricky thing to get around. But, but you know, if, if, if I see a police officer that I'm trying to do exposure therapy, I can't do that because they're still being exposed to ongoing trauma, then I think that's one example where I'd be telling them to stay away from work while we do some treatment. And that, of course, raises another question, and that's how and when people should return to work. The final arm of the Mental Healthy Workplace Framework calls for supporting return to work. How do we do that? How do we make a decision about when we recommend that a patient should return to work and how they should do it? suggestion would be in consultation with the, the individual's you know, medical practitioner, and most, most companies have got return to work programs like um, graduated return or basic so capacity assessment um, because it is important to try to get people back to work as soon as practical because the longer people are away from work, the harder it becomes. So it is, it, it's about doing it sensitively, carefully and with the consultation of all the relevant stakeholders. The only thing I'd add is that um, we need to... Get away from the idea that somebody needs to be 100% recovered before they go back to work because the longer they're away from work, the harder it is to get back. And that's where this idea of partial sickness absence and graded return really comes into its own. Um, And there's lots of stuff happening internationally to try and help that process. Perhaps the best known example is fit notes in the UK instead of sick notes to try and encourage GPs to think about what 
someone can do rather than than signing them off. So what things are companies doing to improve the mental health of the workplace? What happens at Black Dog Institute? We survey staff concerns regularly, take action on them and provide feedback. Marion, our workplace wellbeing chief, has a five-step approach to wellbeing in the workplace. Firstly, she takes notice of staff opinions and ideas. Secondly, she provides space for physical activity in the workplace, from standing desks to ping-pong tables and on-site yoga classes. Thirdly, she creates opportunities for staff to connect socially. We have a kitchen, not just a tea room. And fourthly, she encourages and creates opportunities for further learning. And last of all, she encourages us to give back. For example, by participating in fundraising activities for other organisations and causes. I wonder if any of these things can be translated into useful initiatives in your workplace. There's another issue that I think is really important for us as health practitioners to discuss, and that's the issue of whether or not you reveal existing mental health conditions in um, to your employer. Danny, for example, is a 32-year-old pharmacy graduate who's just got a fantastic job with a multinational pharmaceutical company that involves lots of responsibility and international travel. But Danny was diagnosed five years ago with bipolar disorder after a number of episodes of severe depression during her university days and two clear short-lived episodes of hypomania. She knows that the kinds of stresses that are coming in this new job are going to put pressure on her in terms of her illness. She does all the right things. She takes her medication. She exercises regularly. She doesn't drink too much. She can feel a hypomanic episode coming on and nip it in the bud, as lots of people with bipolar 2 can. Um, but what she's asking you is, do I tell my employee, employer? Now, what do you have to say about that, Sam? It depends, really. Uh, I, I think it depends on her relationship with the the employer and, um, and and why she's telling him. And I guess my attitude is we shouldn't go into these discussions with too much of a rose-tinted lens on things. But um, we know that the moment you declare that you've got a, had a mental health problem, that that will have an impact on the way people there is still stigma in the workplace lots of evidence around that however you know if you're able if, if she is able to go in with a narrative of saying look you know this is a condition that I suffer here is the plan that I've got to management manage it this is what I need from you as my employer then that is a way of trying to maximize the advantages and minimize the risk but it's a complex decision and there's some new programs coming online where they help step people through that decision one step at a time to work out whether what's right for them. Should she say something straight away? If she's going to say something, should she say it straight away so her boss knows, knows that this is the situation or should she wait until she's getting sick before she says something? Sam, what do you think? Look, in general... You know, that there's a balance. Of course, the earlier the better, and I think it is much easier to have the conversation when she is well rather than when she's unwell. But I, I, I think there is an argument to be had that actually 
if you can delay it for a bit to get a sense of what things are like in the organisation, what your manager is like and things like that, then that gives you more information to make the decision. I hope this podcast has engaged you with some new and useful ideas. There's just one more thing I'd like to tell you about, and that's a resource on the Black Dog Institute website called the Workplace Mental Health Toolkit. It's likely to contain some resources that you will find very helpful. Thanks for listening. Thank you.